Part 1. Imperium. Circa AD 410 to AD 750. Chapter 1. Romans. Everywhere the name of the Roman people is an object of reverence and awe. Ammianus Marcellinus, Roman historian and soldier. They left the safety of the road and tramped out into the wilderness, lugging the heavy wooden chest between them. How their limbs must have ached as they carried it some two miles across the uneven landscape, for the box, while only a metre in length, was well built, densely filled, and sealed with a large silver spring lock. To move it any distance required at least two people, or a small cart, for crate and contents together weighed half as much as a person. But the value of the goods inside far exceeded the cost of a human being. A slave imported from Gaul brought across the British Sea, Oceanus Britannicus, today the English Channel, and converted into cash on the markets of London, Londinium, might in those days cost 600 denarii, assuming he or she were fit, young, and either hard-working or good-looking. This was no small price, around twice an ordinary soldier's annual wages. But if it was a lot, it was also nothing at all for an elite citizen of the Roman Empire in the 5th century AD. Inside the oak box that creaked as they hiked across the gently sloping countryside was a fortune sufficient to pay for a whole houseful of slaves. The precious load inside the oaken case included nearly 600 gold coins known as solidi. These jangled against 15,000 silver silique and a couple of handfuls of random bronze pieces. The coins were stamped variously with the faces of emperors from three dynasties, the most recent of them the ill-fated usurper Constantine III, reigned 407 or 9 to AD 411. Nestled among the coins were even greater treasures, an assortment of gorgeous gold necklaces, rings and fashionable body chains designed to cling to the curves of a slender young woman's body. Bangles etched with geometric patterns and lifelike hunting scenes. Tableware, including silver spoons and pepper pots in the shape of wild beasts, ancient heroes and empresses. Elegant toilet utensils, including silver earwax scrapers and toothpicks made to look like long-necked ibises. Bowls, beakers and jugs and a tiny elephant ivory pyxis the sort of trinket that rich men like Aurelius Ursicinus, whose name was etched into many of the items, liked to buy for refined women like the Lady Julianne, Juliane. A bespoke bracelet was personalised with a loving message spelled in tiny strips of beaten gold. Utere Felix, Domina Juliane. Use this happily, Lady Julianne and ten silver spoons advertised the family's devotion to the young but pervasive religion of the day. Each was stamped with the symbol known as the Cairo, a monogram made up of the first two Greek letters in the word Christ. This would have been instantly familiar to fellow believers, Christians, who were part of a community of the faithful which stretched from Britain and Ireland, Hibernia, to North Africa and the Middle East. This hoard of coins, jewellery and home furnishings 
was by no means the sum total of the family's valuables, for Aurelius and Julianne were members of the small, fabulously wealthy Christian elite of Britain, a villa set who lived in similar comfort and splendour to other elites right across Europe and the Mediterranean. But it was a significant nest egg all the same, and the family had taken some trouble in selecting what to include in it. That was only right, because this rich cash was effectively an insurance policy. The family had instructed that it be buried somewhere discreet for safekeeping, while they waited to see whether Britain's increasingly turbulent politics would tip over into governmental collapse, civil unrest, or something worse. Only time would tell what fate held for the province. In the meantime, the best place for an affluent clan's riches was underground. The bustle of the busy road, the route that joined the eastern town of Castor by Norwich, Venta Icanorum, with the London to Colchester, Camulodunum thoroughfare, had long receded into the distance, and the small group carrying the box found themselves alone and out of sight. They had walked far enough that the nearest town, Skoll, was more than two miles away. Satisfied that they had found a good spot, they set the box down. They may have rested a while, perhaps even until nightfall, but soon enough shovels hit the earth, the soil, a mixture of clay and sandy gravel, heaped up, and a shallow hole emerged. They did not need to dig far, there was no need to waste effort, for they would be only making work for themselves in the future. So when the hole was just a few feet deep, they carefully lowered the box into it and backfilled the soil. As they did so, the stout oak case containing Aurelius's spoons and silverware, Julianne's delicately wrought jewellery, and many handfuls of coin disappeared, buried like grave goods, those prized possessions of the deceased, which had been laid to rest with their owners in half-remembered days of generations past. The diggers took note of the spot, then set off, relieved and unburdened, back towards the road. They would, they may have said to themselves, be back. When? It was hard to say, but surely, once the political storms battering Britain eased and the barbarous invaders who attacked the eastern seaboard with wearying regularity were finally driven away, and the loyal soldiers returned from their wars in Gaul, Master Aurelius would send them back to dig up his valuable cargo. In AD 409, they did not know and could not have begun to imagine that Aurelius Ursicinus's treasure trove would in fact remain under the ground for nearly 1,600 years. At the dawn of the 5th century AD, Britain was the furthest flung part of the Roman Empire, a superpower with a glorious history stretching back more than a millennium. Rome began as an Iron Age monarchy. Tradition dated its origins to 753 BC. But following the reigns of seven kings, who according to Roman law became increasingly tyrannical, in 509 BC it became a republic. Later still, in the first century BC, the republic too was overthrown and Rome was ruled by emperors. At first a single emperor ruled in Rome, but later as many as four emperors ruled simultaneously from capitals including Milan, Ravenna and Constantinople. The fourth Roman emperor, Claudius, reigned AD 41-54, to 54, 
began the conquest of Britain in AD 43, assaulting the native peoples of the islands with an army of 20,000 fierce Roman legionaries and a war machine including armoured elephants. By the end of the first century, a large part of southern Britannia had been conquered, up to a militarised zone in the north, which was eventually marked by Hadrian's Wall. Britain was henceforth no longer a mysterious zone at the limits of the known world, but a territory that had in large part been pacified and incorporated into a Mediterranean superstate. For the three and a half centuries that followed, Britain was joined to the Roman Empire, a political behemoth only rivalled for size, sophistication, military muscle and longevity by the Persian megastates of the Parthians and Sassanids and the empire of the Chinese Han Dynasty. Ammianus Marcellinus, a Greek-born historian who lived and wrote in the 4th century AD, called Rome a city destined to endure as long as the human race survives. The Roman Empire, meanwhile, had set its foot on the proud necks of savage peoples and given them laws to serve as the eternal foundation and guarantee of liberty. There was hyperbole here, but only a pinch. Ammianus Marcellinus was by no means the only serious Roman writer to look upon Rome and its empire and see a series of triumphs stretching back to the dimness of prehistory and forward to infinity. Poets and historians such as Virgil, Horace, Ovid and Livy gave voice to the superior nature of the Roman citizen and the epic character of the city's imperial history. Virgil's Aeneid, which wove Romans a magical origin myth, told of an empire that will know no end under the people of Rome, the rulers of the world, the race that wears the toga. It is our Roman way to do and suffer bravely, wrote Livy. Four centuries later, and even after an exceptionally troublesome age in which the empire had been racked by civil war, usurpation, assassination, invasion, political schism, epidemic disease and near bankruptcy, Marcellinus could still maintain that Rome is accepted in every region of the world as mistress and queen. Everywhere the authority of its senators is paid the respect due to their grey hairs, and the name of the Roman people is an object of reverence and awe. Yet a generation after Marcellinus wrote these paeans, the western half of the empire was in a state of final collapse. Roman garrisons and political rulers were everywhere abandoning lands they and their forebears had occupied and ruled since the dawn of the millennium. Imperial rule dissolved in Britain in AD 409-410, never to be restored. The shock of Britain's abrupt exit from this pan-European union was precisely what led elite families, like that of Aurelius Ursicinus and Julian, to pack up their riches and put them in the ground, a financial hedge that became, quite unintentionally, a glittering time capsule preserving the end of an era. By the end of the 5th century, the Roman Empire in the West no longer existed. It was, wrote the great 18th century historian Edward Gibbon, a revolution which will ever be remembered and is still felt by the nations of the earth. The decline and fall of the Western Roman Empire is a historical phenomenon that has exercised modern historians for centuries, 
for the legacy of Rome remains with us even to this day, stamped into language, landscape, law and culture. And if Rome still speaks to us in the 21st century, its voice rang even louder during the Middle Ages, the period which this book aims to chronicle and explore. We will examine in detail the end of the Roman Empire in the next chapter, but for now we must turn our thoughts to its rise, or rather its mutation out of the Republic, around the turn of the first millennium, and sketch the land as it lay immediately before the Middle Ages. For to see the medieval West properly, we must first ask how and why eternal Rome, Roma Eterna, managed to command an empire connecting three continents, an innumerable number of peoples with their various religions and traditions, and a similarly vast babel of languages, an empire of tribal wanderers, peasant farmers, and metropolitan elites, an empire stretching out from the creative hubs of antique culture to the ends of the known world. Climate and Conquest Romans liked to tell each other that they were favoured by the gods. In fact, for much of their history, they were blessed with good weather. Between roughly the years 200 BC and AD 150, when Rome flourished as republic and empire, a set of pleasant and profitable climate conditions settled upon the west. For nearly four centuries, there were no massive volcanic eruptions of the sort that from time to time depressed temperatures across the globe. During the same age, solar activity was high and stable. As a result, Western Europe and the broader Mediterranean fringe enjoyed a cycle of unusually warm and hospitable decades, which also happened to be very wet. Plants and animals flourished. Elephants roamed forests in the Atlas Mountains, while grapevines and olive groves could be grown further north than at any time in living memory. Tracts of land that in other eras were barren and hostile to the plough could be cultivated, and crop yields on traditionally good land boomed. These boon years, during which nature seemed to offer her greatest prizes to any civilization capable of recognizing its opportunity, are now sometimes called the Roman Climate Optimum, RCO, or Roman Warm Period. Rome officially became an empire on the 16th of January 27 BC, when the Senate awarded Octavian, an adopted son of Julius Caesar, the title of Augustus. Prior to this, the Republic had been tortured by two decades of bloody civil wars. In the course of these, in 49 BC, Caesar had seized power and ruled as a military dictator. Yet Caesar was an autocrat both of his time and ahead of it, and on the 15th of March 44 BC, the Ides of March, he was murdered. Direct reward, said the scholar and bureaucrat Suetonius, circa AD 70 to 130, for his vaunting ambition, in which many Romans perceived a desire to revive the monarchy. Constant exercise of power gave Caesar a love for it, wrote Suetonius, who also repeated a rumour that as a young man, Caesar dreamed of raping his own mother, a vision soothsayers interpreted as a clear sign he was destined to conquer the earth. Fame was Caesar's destiny, but true greatness was Octavian's. Imperium was almost written on Octavian's face, his bright eyes and magnetically handsome features 
was somehow accentuated by a tousled, slightly disheveled appearance, which would have suggested an utter lack of vanity were it not for the fact that he wore stack-heeled shoes to raise him above his natural height of five foot seven inches. Octavian succeeded where Caesar had not, avenging his father's death and defeating his enemies in battle, eventually emerging as Rome's sole, uncontested ruler. As Augustus, he accrued to himself all the carefully separated political powers of the Republic, effectively playing senator, consul and tribune, Pontifex Maximus, high priest, and supreme military commander, all at once. Augustus's character divided Roman opinion. Was he a high-minded visionary and peerless soldier politician, or a corrupt, bloodthirsty, treacherous tyrant, wondered the historian Tacitus, circa AD 58 to 116, without committing to either judgment. But his achievements as emperor, or as he preferred it, first citizen, princeps civitatis, were impossible to gainsay. On taking power, he stamped out the embers of the late Republic's debilitating civil war. He transformed the city of Rome with grandiose building projects, some of them already begun under Caesar and others, of his own design. The 500-acre field of Mars, Campus Martius, littered with temples and monuments, was radically rebuilt. New theatres, aqueducts and roads were commissioned. Only the finest building materials passed muster. On his deathbed, Augustus bragged that he had found Rome a city of brick, but left it a city of marble. He carried out sweeping reforms to government, concentrating power in his own hands at the expense of the Senate, and encouraging a personal cult of imperial magnificence, which evolved under his successors until some emperors were venerated as demigods. By the time Augustus died on the 19th of August AD 14, at the grand old age of 75, the Roman Empire had been vastly and dramatically expanded, pacified and extensively reformed. Although Britain was still an untapped wilderness, Caesar had blanched at the prospect of a full invasion when he visited in 55 to 54 BC and his son left the Britons alone too, the early Roman Empire included the entire Italian and Iberian peninsulas, Gaul, modern France, transalpine Europe as far as the Danube, most of the Balkans and Asia Minor, a thick slice of the Levantine coast from Antioch in the north to Gaza in the south, the vastly wealthy province of Egypt, Egyptus, won by Augustus in a famous war against the last Ptolemaic pharaoh Cleopatra and her lover Mark Antony and a continuous stretch of North Africa as far west as Numidia, modern Algeria. And the stage was set for even greater expansion during the century that followed. Rome was the only power in history to rule every shore of the Mediterranean basin, and it added to this an exceptionally deep fringe of territory reaching many miles inland. At its peak under Trajan, reigned AD 98-117, to who conquered Dacia, modern Romania, the empire covered some five million square kilometres, from Hadrian's Wall to the banks of the River Tigris. A quarter of Earth's human population lived under Roman rule. This huge conglomerate of imperial territory was not just seized, but reorganised and imprinted with the defining features of Roman civilization. 
Colossal, centrally commanded, fiercely defended at the fringes, and closely governed, if not exactly free or tolerant, within its borders. Technologically advanced and efficiently connected to itself and the world beyond, Rome's imperial apogee had arrived. They make a solitude and call it peace. So what were the defining features of the Roman Empire? First, and most striking to outsiders, was Rome's extraordinary and enduring military strength. Warrior culture infused politics. Election to office during the Republic was more or less contingent on having completed a term of military service, and military command in turn depended on election to political office. Unsurprisingly, therefore, many of Rome's greatest historical achievements were won on the battlefield. The machinery of state relied upon, and to a large degree existed to serve, a professional standing army, which numbered around a quarter of a million men at the end of Augustus's reign, and at its peak in the early 3rd century AD, could field 450,000 troops across the empire. Legions, each containing 5,000 heavy infantry, recruited from the Roman citizenry, were augmented by auxiliary units, auxilia drawn from the empire's vast non-citizen population, and mercenaries, numeri, recruited from barbarian forces outside the empire's borders. As we shall see, the barbarian contingent of the Roman army came to dominate in the later years of empire. Naval fleets employed another 50,000 men. The cost of maintaining this force, dispersed across millions of square miles from the North Sea to the Caspian Sea, gobbled between 2% and 4% of the empire's entire GDP every year. Well over half the state budget was spent on defence. There were times, during the last days of the Republic in the 1st century BC, and under the many inglorious emperors who ruled during the so-called crisis of the 3rd century, when Roman military might worked against the cause of imperial harmony. Yet without the Roman army, there could have been no empire at all. Your task, Roman, wrote Virgil, 70 to 19 BC, will be to govern the peoples of the world in your empire. These will be your arts, to impose a settled pattern upon peace, to pardon the defeated, and to battle down the proud. The Roman imperial army's size, speed of movement, technological proficiency, tactical nous, and terrible discipline was matched by no other power of its time and made Virgil's lofty aim possible. The typical Roman soldier signed on to serve for at least ten years. Prior to the 3rd century AD, the prize for serving in the auxiliaries for 25 years was full Roman citizenship. Regular pay was reasonable, while the roles available were many and varied. Besides infantry, trained to fight with a short sword, long curved shield, and javelin. The Roman army employed horsemen, artillerymen, medics, musicians, clerks, and engineers. There was a strong culture of reward and honour for distinguished service. But by the same token, discipline was brutally strict, proceeding by starvation, flogging, and, on occasion, summary execution. According to the Greek writer Polybius, who composed a detailed history of Rome in the 2nd century BC, 
soldiers who failed to stand their ground in battle could be punished by fustuarium supplicum, in which their colleagues jointly cudgelled or stoned them to death. In the case of mass failure or disobedience, a legion might be decimated, decimatio. One soldier in ten would be selected by lot and beaten to death by his colleagues. In republican times, the legions had established Rome's hegemony in the Mediterranean with a series of wars for the ages, defeating the Macedonians, the Seleucids, and, perhaps most famously, the Carthaginians, whose great general Hannibal marched elephants over the Alps in 218 BC, but failed to finish off the Republic, despite crushing the largest army which had ever been assembled by Rome, at the Battle of Cannae in 216 BC. Later generations would rue Hannibal's failure. The Carthaginians' punishment for daring to defy Rome was the annihilation of their ancient capital, Carthage, following the Third Punic War in 146 BC. In the same year, in a separate theatre of conflict, the ancient Greek town of Corinth was also plundered and razed to the ground. Collectively, these wars demonstrated the long-term superiority of Rome's military, which continued into the imperial era. The experience of facing a Roman army in the field was bracing to say the least, as can be shown by way of a single example from the 1st century AD, when the imperial army bared its teeth during the invasion and subjugation of Britain. Julius Caesar made the first exploratory military expeditions to Britain in 55 and 54 BC. Britain was an attractive target for Rome, promising fertile agricultural land in the southeast and mines across the islands rich in tin, copper, lead, silver and gold deposits. It was also a place where rebels from Gaul tended to flee to avoid Roman authority. Besides which, there was a prestige simply in the prospect of conquering an archipelago reckoned to mark the limit of the navigable world. Caesar's invasions were defeated by native British belligerents and foul weather, but a century later, in AD 43, in Claudius's reign, four legions led an amphibious invasion, sparking a war of occupation that lasted on and off for nearly half a century. Tribes like the Iceni, who rebelled under the warrior queen Boudicca in AD 60-61, were wiped out with extreme prejudice. Others cut deals. Britain and the British were never the same again. The ruthlessness with which the imperial army conquered and pacified Britain was a matter of considerable pride to Romans, as was summed up wryly by Tacitus in the famous speech he put in the mouth of a doomed tribal chieftain, Galgacus, preparing to give battle against a Roman army under Gnaeus Julius Agricola, who happened to be Tacitus's father-in-law. Robbers of the world, having by their universal plunder exhausted the land, they rifle the deep. If the enemy be rich, they are rapacious. If he be poor, they lust for dominion. Neither the east nor the west has been able to satisfy them. Alone among men they covet with equal eagerness poverty and riches. To robbery, slaughter, plunder, they give the lying name of empire. They make a solitude and call it peace. Shortly after listening to this speech, Galgacus's men were fleeing helter-skelter from Agricola's army of legionaries, auxiliaries and cavalry, 
an awful and hideous spectacle, wrote Tacitus. The tribal warriors fled in whole battalions. Everywhere there lay scattered arms, corpses, and mangled limbs, and the earth reeked with blood. That night the Roman army partied, but the Britons, wandering amidst the mingled wailings of men and women, were dragging off their wounded, calling to the unhurt, deserting their homes. The silence of desolation reigned everywhere. The hills were forsaken. Houses were smoking in the distance. Galgacus had predicted his comrades' fate with absolute accuracy, and in doing so, he relived the experience of countless other tribal leaders on the edge of the Roman Empire through the centuries. Even when legions suffered ambush or defeat, as they did from time to time, in Britain, Gaul, Germany, Germania, Dacia, Palestine, and elsewhere, the loss was seldom sufficient to vanquish the Roman presence. The underpinning fact of Roman military hegemony was the empire's ability to absorb defeat, escalate conflict, and exact pitiless revenge. Rome lost many battles, but precious few wars. For all this, however, the Roman army also won many fine victories in which no swords were drawn, no javelins readied, and no blood spilled. The advantage of unapproachable battlefield scale was then, as it has regularly been throughout history, the luxury of winning without fighting. The Roman army's might was not simply an active force. It also acted as a de facto deterrent to potential rivals, since no other power in the Western world could match the resources of the imperial forces Emperors could use the mere fact of their military capability as a political tool to bludgeon rivals into submission. This is a lesson that most superpowers in world history have come to appreciate. The golden age of Roman military might came during the 200 years that followed Augustus's accession in 27 BC. This age was known as the Pax Romana, a time where, by the standards of the day, Rome could offer exceptional stability, peace, and opportunities for prosperity to those who lived under its aegis. It was able to do so because it paid collectively to be protected by the most dangerous army on earth. The Pax Romana frayed and began to unravel after the death of the philosopher-emperor Marcus Aurelius in AD 180. For several decades during the 3rd century, crisis engulfed the empire with periods during which it split into three blocks, entertained dozens of emperors, and nearly collapsed altogether, a fate that tested, almost to destruction, the resolve and capability of the Roman military. Yet by the time of the 4th and early 5th centuries AD, Romans still prided themselves on their armed forces, now increasingly professionalised and posted around the frontiers of the empire, the limes. Protecting the fringes of civilization from the incursions of barbarian peoples, ensuring that, by and large, despite its divisions and fractures, its power struggles and its internal feuds, the empire held firm. So during its heyday, Rome was a war state non pare, which could crush any other actor in its sphere. Even after the third century crisis, when it was challenged hard, by the Sassanid Persians in the east and barbarians in the west, it remained a formidable force. 
Yet overwhelming military power and reach alone did not distinguish Rome from other broadly contemporaneous superpowers of the classical world. In the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great's Macedonian Empire had extended from the Ionian islands of the central Mediterranean to the Himalayas. The various Persian empires of antiquity covered similar territory. Around AD 100, the Chinese Eastern Han ruled over 2.5 million square miles and 60 million people. What made Rome so dominant in the Mediterranean world and beyond was the fact that overwhelming armed force developed in tune with a sophisticated civic machinery, a mesh of -of state-of-the-art social, cultural and legal systems that Romans considered to be virtuous in and of themselves. Whether or not they were right, and today we may well entertain our doubts about a society that heavily circumscribed the rights of millions of women and the poor, viciously persecuted dissenters from its norms, fetishised blood sports and other forms of civic violence, and depended for survival on mass slavery, the Roman way of life was highly exportable and left deep, often permanent marks everywhere it arrived. Citizens and strangers. A few years after the Emperor Claudius took his elephants to Britain to subjugate the tribes at the end of the world, he found himself before the Senate, addressing a rowdy group of Rome's leading dignitaries on the intertwined matters of citizenship and political power. The year was AD 48, and the cause at hand was a particular one. Whether or not the wealthiest and most respectable citizens of the Roman provinces of Gaul should be allowed to be elected as senators. Claudius, a scholarly, if weak limbed and short sighted grandson of Augustus, who happened to have been born in Gaul at Lyon, Lugdunum, believed they should. To emphasise his point, he referred his audience to the ancient history of Rome stretching right back to the days when their founder and first king, Romulus, was succeeded by a ruler from outside the city, Numa the Sabine. Rome, argued Claudius, had always been a place in which the worthiest outsiders were absorbed. I think that provincials should not be rejected as long as they will be a credit to the Senate, he said. Not every senator agreed. Some argued vehemently that it was disgraceful for Rome willingly to have a mob of foreigners forced upon us, particularly since the foreigners in question, Gauls, had once fought bitterly and bloodily against Roman conquest. At the heart of this argument lay two age-old debates which have animated rulers of powerful realms from the beginning of time to the present day. How does a state rehabilitate its former enemies, and does opening up membership of a state or society to non-natives strengthen or dilute its blood and character? It was an argument that rumbled throughout Rome's centuries of imperial dominance, and one that left a legacy to the Middle Ages and beyond. Before the Senate in AD 48, Claudius was well prepared. To the suspicions levelled against the Gauls' loyalty, he said, If anyone concentrates on the fact that the Gauls resisted the divine Julius, Caesar, in war for ten years, he should consider that they have also been loyal and trustworthy for a hundred years, 
and had this loyalty tried to the utmost when we were in danger. To the more general objections about non-Italians being classed as Roman, he directed his listeners to the examples of the ancient Greeks. What was the ruin of Sparta and Athens but this, that, mighty as they were in war, they spurned from them as aliens those whom they had conquered? Either convinced or browbeaten by their impassioned emperor, the senators eventually agreed. From that point on, Gauls could not only attain Roman citizenship, but also aspire to the highest political office in the empire. One of the most important social distinctions of Rome, in the city itself, the Italian peninsula, and eventually the vast territories the Roman army conquered, was between citizens and the rest. Roman society was obsessed with rank and order, and the small distinctions between the upper-class divisions of senators, senatoris, and equestrians, equites, the middling ranks of the plebeians, and the landless poor known as proletarii, were taken very seriously. But citizenship mattered most. To be a citizen of Rome meant, in the deepest sense, freedom. For men, it conferred an enviable package of rights and responsibilities. Citizens could vote, hold political office, use the law courts to defend themselves and their property, wear the toga on ceremonial occasions, do military service in the legions rather than the auxiliaries, claim immunity from certain taxes, and avoid most forms of corporal and capital punishment, including flogging, torture, and crucifixion. Citizenship was not limited to men. Although many of its rights were denied to women, female citizens could pass the status on to their children, and their lives were more likely to feature comfort and plenty if they were citizens than if they were not. Citizenship was therefore a prized status, which was why the Roman state dangled it as reward for auxiliaries who served a quarter century in the Roman army and for slaves who served uncomplainingly in the knowledge that if their master freed them, they too could claim the right to limited citizenship as freedmen. To lose one's citizenship, the punishment imposed for very serious crimes such as homicide or forgery, was a form of legal dismemberment and social death. Rome was not by any means unique in fostering this concept of legal and social privilege. There were citizens in ancient Greece, Carthage, and numerous other Mediterranean states of the era. But Rome was unique in the way that it developed and extended the concept of citizenship over its long history to help sustain its own imperial dominion. The root purpose of the empire was to funnel wealth to be spent in Rome. In that sense, it was a racket based on rampant exploitation. Yet through the promise of citizenship, a share in the plunder, conquered aristocrats could usually be brought on side. Accordingly, during the first two centuries of empire, as the imperial provinces expanded, citizenship was gradually awarded to high-status groups far outside Italy. Noblemen and magistrates, auxiliaries who had completed their service in the army, retired officials and their freed slaves could all acquire citizenship, either full status or one of the numerous qualified forms which came with a limited but still desirable slew of rights. Finally, in AD 212, the emperor Caracalla finished what Claudius started, 
and decreed that all free people across the provinces could claim citizenship of some form. The entire populace, announced Caracalla, should share in the victory. This edict will enhance the majesty of the Roman people. Many historians have seen the Edict of Caracalla, sometimes called the Antonine Constitution, as a turning point in the history of the empire, since it was a decision that weakened the imperial system to its core, diluting the appeal to non-Romans of joining the army and denuding citizenship of prestige. Perhaps this is so, but it is also true that an open attitude to assimilation within the empire had been one of Rome's key historic advantages for it prioritised the values of the Roman system above everything else, and admitted freely and without hang-ups the possibility that people were capable of entertaining more than one cultural identity. A Roman did not need to have been born within sight of the seven hills of the Eternal City. He or she could be North African or Greek, a Gaul, German or Briton, a Spaniard or a Slav. Even emperors did not have to be ethnically Roman. Trajan and Hadrian were Spaniards. Septimius Severus, who seized power in AD 193 and clung to it until AD 211, was born in Libya, Leptis Magna, to a North African father and a Syrian Arab mother. His successors, known as the Severan dynasty, therefore shared this African Arab heritage. The second emperor of this dynasty was none other than Caracalla. So while Caracalla had good political reasons for issuing his edict of AD 212, not least widening the tax base during a parlous time for the public finances, it is perhaps not too anachronistic to suspect the experience of being an emperor with African heritage must have affected his thinking.